This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde wonders, what better owner for Twitter than billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk, master of the ill-advised tweet? Journalist Laura Barton interviews one of the world's finest live acts, Arcade Fire. Writer Hannah Booth tells us why she has given up therapy after 10 years. And finally, author Joanna Cannon asks, are you a hyper-empath? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. So... Ultimate shitposter Elon Musk has bought up Twitter, and its denizens are angry. How entirely appropriate. But then, it might just be the grim cost of potentially saving humanity. So if endlessly righteous folk on the platform balk at the mere idea of these necessary evils, Marina Hyde asks, why do they act like their own involvement in Twitter is okay? Read by Esther Coles. Speaking a few hours ago about Twitter purchaser Elon Musk, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey declared, I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. Bless. This feels like the first flashback scene we see in a dystopian drama after the words six months earlier, quite where we'll be in six months' time, as far as Twitter is concerned, remains tantalisingly unclear but it seems difficult to imagine it will be either a more or less pleasant space. It's a social media platform. I'm not sure what further evidence humanity needs before we cotton on to the idea that such a thing might be an intrinsically toxic concept. Of course, there will always be some people who think it just hasn't been done right yet. Like communism. Or a British version of The Daily Show. Anyway, if Musk's takeover goes through, he'll assume control of a platform where the people on the right are incredibly angry about free speech and those on the left are incredibly angry about hate speech, which is to say they have so much in common. 
As the tech visionary Jaron Lanier has long been excellent at pointing out, the best way to keep people on platforms is to make them angry. So the platforms are designed to make them angry. You might consider the anger worth it for your version of advertising. I myself will post this column on Twitter. But even then, it is a weirdly grim cost of doing business that just conceivably ought to be weighed far more carefully than it is. Unlike the UK, Musk manufactures other things besides anger. But Twitter is the platform where, in a single calendar year, his posts led to multiple lawsuits, a fall in his stock price and a Securities and Exchange Commission settlement that resulted in his chairmanship of Tesla being forcibly ended. Yet in a move that will feel familiar to a lot of Twitter users, he has not logged off, but leaned in further. When I was a child, there was a guy called Victor Kayam who owned Remington, and he would personally feature in the firm's electric razor adverts, going, I like the shaver so much, I bought the company. It would be nice to see Musk do something similar. I like calling innocent people pedos so much, I bought the company. Against this backdrop, the distress of Twitter users feels overplayed. Perhaps Elon embodies a kind of radical honesty and self-awareness not shared by other denizens of the site. People who seem to spend half their lives complaining about Twitter, on Twitter, seem stunned by the idea that a shit poster would ultimately buy it. Catch up. It doesn't feel like a complete coincidence that all social media platforms are owned by men you'd rather run a mile from socially. Musk is one of them. A brilliant, horrid, ridiculous and very occasionally endearing grotesque. A sort of intergalactically successful Dominic Cummings. And yet, despite Elon's give-a-toss gift for making himself what Twitter users might call the main character, I can't detest him entirely. If he pulls off the radical green energy transition embodied in Tesla, or even just one of his other wildly ambitious schemes, humans might have to accept some of the shit that's gone with it. Accept it angrily, of course. How else? We're on a social media platform. But accept it nonetheless. A huge number of people in public life behave appallingly and achieve absolutely nothing but harm. But if endlessly righteous folk balk at the mere idea of necessary evils, why do they act like their own involvement in Twitter is one? It isn't. It's easy to focus on the high-profile people who are always on Twitter, but the sheer numbers of highly successful, highly creative and highly interesting people in the worlds of arts, business, science and beyond who aren't on it should tell a much more powerful story. They are part of all kinds of era-defining creative and commercial conversations and breakthroughs, and somehow manage to do it all without lavishing half the day scrolling past a bunch of other people having a row. Lonia has cast detailed doubt on whether most Twitter advocacy is even meaningfully effective despite sometimes appearing to be so. 
if you spend your day caught up in online fighting, it's preferable to tell yourself you're involved in consciousness raising for your cause. An alternative view is that you are simply obsessively polarising your particular debate, to the point where compromise, boring, unfashionable, yet historically always necessary, becomes a more distant possibility. My unpopular opinion in one of Twitter's tellingly popular phrases is that those who spend a significant amount of time arguing on it work for the platform and not for their cause. The Musk takeover at least makes it easier to see whose pocket you're putting money into as you delude yourself your winning arguments. I'm certainly not saying I follow this rule, but in general, I think arguing on the internet is like playing real tennis. Even if you win, you're still a twat. That was What Better Owner for Twitter Than Elon Musk, Master of the Ill-Advised Tweet by Marina Hyde, read by Esther Coles. Next. Just before the pandemic hit two years ago, indie music aristocracy and Canadian troubadours Arcade Fire managed just three days of demoing. Husband and wife and creative heart of the band, Win Butler and Regine Chassan, worked intensely for months to create a taut treatise on Trump, togetherness and tough love. Here, Laura Barton traverses the captivating culture and creativity of New Orleans with the couple and their complicated relationship with their homeland. Read by George Georgiou. Mid-morning in New Orleans, and outside an uptown coffee shop, Wynne Butler is talking of life in his adopted city. The basketball, brass bands, and the poisonous caterpillars of the buck moth that, in late spring, fall from the city's trees onto unsuspecting passers-by beneath. He surveys the mighty oaks across the street, broad-branched and strung with moss, Trees run this city, Butler says. They've definitely seen some shit, those trees. With his wife, Regine Chassin, Butler is best known for fronting Arcade Fire. The band formed in Montreal at the turn of the millennium, quickly gained a reputation as one of the world's finest live acts, and over the course of five albums, became indie music aristocracy. They were anointed by Davids Bowie and Byrne. They won a Grammy, A Juno and a Brit, they played Obama's inauguration and frequently used their platform for political activism, promoting healthcare non-profits, indigenous protesters and a number of Haitian charities. Chassan is of Haitian descent. More recently, the band raised $100,000 for the Ukraine Relief Fund by playing a series of small club shows across the US, including cult New York venue The Bowery Ballroom. At times, they have irked their audiences. The hijinks that surrounded the launch of their disco-tinged 2013 album Reflector, secret gigs, street parties, audience dress codes, brought faintly unsettling echoes of U2's Zoo TV campaign. But it was the release of their last album, 2017's Everything Now, that rattled fans the most. The album was accompanied by a high-concept promotional campaign, claiming that Arcade Fire were now part of a multinational corporation. They named their tour Infinite Content and posted parodic record reviews, fake news stories, ironic product placements. 
To some, it was glittering commentary on the consumer age. To others, it seemed sneering, over-earnest and ill-conceived. To many, it was uncomfortably removed from the visceral heartswell of their live shows. This month, the band released their sixth album, We, a record they describe as being about the forces that pull us away from the people we love and the urgent need to overcome them. This being Arcade Fire, there is a hefty intellectual backstory, nods to the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A-star and a guest term by Peter Gabriel. But it also stands as the band's most tender record since their early output, spacious and simple and sweet, an album born out of the steady closeness of pandemic days. Butler, Chassin and their son moved to Louisiana six years ago, captivated by its mingling of cultures and unbridled passion for music and creativity. What's that Mark Twain line about there being only three cities in America? Butler asks as we walk along Magazine Street. New York, San Francisco and New Orleans. Everything else is Cleveland. Butler cuts a conspicuous figure, basketball player tall, with bleached blonde hair, Today he's wearing cream-coloured jeans, a tie-dyed white t-shirt and black bomber jacket. There's an intensity to the way he speaks, whether he's talking about a Mardi Gras spent playing cowbell in New Orleans's TBC Brass Band or the hanging chads of the 2000 US presidential race. But he seems to fit comfortably in this neighbourhood, greeting the coffee shop barista warmly and gleefully relating the history of Miss May's a 24-hour dirtbag bar that stands on the corner of Magazine and Napoleon. Down the street, Butler leads us into a former luncheonette, now home to Peaches Records. Peaches, he says, is some way removed from the record shop he frequented as a teenager in the suburbs of Houston, Texas, a chain store in the mall that mostly sells CDs, and where he tried to nourish his love of New Order and The Cure. He talks of how his mother played jazz harp, his grandfather played the pedal steel, and how for the first time he heard Smokey Robinson sing, he couldn't quite believe that this music had been made by human beings. Look at this, Butler says, holding up an octagonal copy of the Rolling Stones' compilation Through the Past Darkly, and holding forth on the qualities of a good record sleeve. His attention alights on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and the merits of the short album. There's like four songs on it, and a lot of connective tissue, he says and they sort of stretch it so you have this space to hear stuff. That's not even my favourite record, but it's an example of coherence. You look at the album artwork, you listen to it, it's very coherent. He was seeking something similar on We, he says, pairing back more songs than ever before to make a taut 40-minute record. We cut some really good shit, he says. That's how we did it. At the counter in Pascal's Manale, the oyster shucker Thomas Uptown T. Stewart stands beside a mound of silver shells, discussing the peaceful pleasures of Serana de Bergerac, jazz, poetry, and softly spoken people. We're drinking martinis, and Butler is trying to persuade me that the best way to eat an oyster is to sit it atop a saltine cracker with horseradish, ketchup, and a little lemon juice. Chassan stands beside him and unceremoniously slugs back a golf oyster from its shell. Stuart is impressed. You knocked that down like you just did a shot of good bourbon, he tells her. I caught your rhythm. You have a lot of good energy. 
Chassin's energy has always been undeniable. When Butler first saw her, she was singing jazz standards at an art opening in Montreal, and he immediately asked her to join his fledgling band. The strands of what she has described as her grandmother music, opera and Jacques Brel, and Edith Piaf, somehow melding with Butler's art-pop influences. On stage, they perform a similar feat, Chassin singing, dancing, shifting between accordion, keys and xylophone, seemingly existing in her own orbit as the rest of the band play on. Back at the table this lunchtime, she sits in a black batwing top and black jeans and her dark curls jigging along to the theme to Captain Kangaroo, inexplicably playing on the restaurant stereo. I haven't heard this song in forever, she says, suddenly distracted. Chassin does this often, a sentence drawing suddenly to a halt so she can sing along with the chorus, then dart back to the conversation. Before the detour into Captain Kangaroo, she was recalling how the new album took root in pre-COVID America, in the days of the Trump presidency. It was pretty turbulent times in the US, she says. You would wake up and you had no idea what was going to happen. The band began work on a record they hoped might reflect that turbulence. Tracks such as the slow, syrupy end of the empire, reflecting the decline of Western power, with references to the cauterizing effect of television, the urge to unsubscribe, and watching the moon on the ocean, where California used to be. The album opens with Age of Anxiety 1 and 2, tracks that take their name from Lawrence Ferlinghetti's 1958 poem, I Am Waiting. When Butler was 15, his beatnik English teacher invited his good friend Ferlinghetti to read at his school. It was a life-changing moment for Butler, so much so that he stole a copy of the poet's Coney Island of the Mind from the school library. Not so long ago, he found the book in a box of his belongings at his parents' house and began rereading. When he came across the poem, I Am Waiting, I just started weeping, he says. All the themes in that poem, it's like all the shit I write about, like looking for the soul of America, waiting for the American eight ball to straighten up and fly right. It got so deep in me, like a spirit got in me. Butler's relationship with his homeland has always been complicated and contradictory and highly charged. This shit is fucking rotten, but there's beautiful things about it, he says. I live in America. I can't believe I still live in America but there's something about it that I can't quit. And as an artist, you're trying to break something open and let the light in. He talks about the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and the war in Ukraine. And it's poor people who suffer, he says. Always everywhere, always poor people suffer. Russian oligarchs are losing one of their boats. Like boo-hoo, which boat did you lose? They're all fine, but all the money... It's blood money. It's all from the suffering of poor people. What role can music play? Butler pauses. We're the court jesters, he says. We're performing in the court. The infrastructure of the thing is money. I don't know the answer, but you can kind of undercut it. Across the table, Chassin frowns. It's not the court, she says firmly. There's no prerequisite on who to play music for. We play music in hospitals for dying patients. We played at the inauguration. It's food for the soul. It's not that the music cures the community, but the music is the evidence that there is a community. It's like evidence of life. 
Arcade Fire's lineup has shifted over the years, but for we, it numbered Richard Reed Parry, Tim Kingsbury, Jeremy Gara, and Butler's younger brother Will, who has since amicably left the band. When the pandemic began, they had all flown to New Orleans to begin work on the new record. And then our phones kept beeping and we were getting texts saying flights are getting cancelled, borders getting closed, remembers Shazan. So we had to do an emergency plan for them to go back immediately. Everything was falling apart. When everyone departed, Shazan and Butler were left with three days' worth of demos. Glorified writing sessions, as Butler puts it. But at a point I thought, well, this might be all there is. So I'm going to work on this as if we're never going to play music again, he says. And I realised that even just three days, there was so much music in there. So it was like, well, that's all we have. This is it. It's D-I-Y. For months, the pair stayed home and wrote with an intensity that they'd been unable to find since their debut album, Funeral. We were stuck in our house, and so what do you do? Says Shasan. I guess the interesting thing is that when you're stuck with yourself, you ask, what am I here for? So we just wrote and wrote and recorded. The songs soon began to pile up. We just worked every day, says Butler, all night, as if it was due the next day, but for like a year. On Butler and Shasan's first date, they went to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Shasan had failed to mention that the film would have French subtitles, and so she spent the movie whispering translations to Butler in the dark of the cinema. Today, over lunch, there seems a similar connection, a closeness to their dynamic that I have not seen since I interviewed them back in 2005 for the funeral. Their sentences frequently overlap, Butler picking up where Shasan leaves off. Their new album might come with a clever marketing campaign, Slick videos, an artful mission statement that mentions Carl Jung and Martin Luther King. But at its heart lies something really quite simple. The connection that spans between the extended family of a band. That exists between a band and its audience that binds two people over the course of a 20-year relationship. There are two distinct halves to this record. The first tells of isolation. The second is about resolve. It's about unconditional love. Love that's not merit-based, says Butler. That's not about loving someone because they're such a good person or they're so talented. It's love that has nothing to do with what you did. It's something that's freely given, and that's why it's the most precious thing. He begins to sip Chassin's untouched martini. Loving someone is hard, he says. It's up and down. It's a tough thing, but it's also the shit. Chassin nods, and the beauty's in the commitment. Outside, the city is closing down, under a tornado warning, shops shuttering, restaurants hurrying away their patio chairs. We drive back, along Magazine Street, with the windows down and the high winds blowing, listening to a top-secret remix of Age of Anxiety 2, Rabbit Hole, a call-and-response track between the pair. Nothing can ever replace it. When it's gone, you can still taste it, runs the lyric, going on this trip together. In the front seat, Butler shakes his head. Behind him, Chassan pats her hands rhythmically into the air, silently finding her way into the song. We drive on through the garden district, past a seafood boil and the alligator museum, and on towards Arcade Fire's rehearsal space. Outside, against the darkening sky, the tops of the oak trees wave wildly. 
That was Arcade Fire, Music is Food for the Soul, Evidence that There is a Community by Laura Barton, read by George Georgiou. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, therapy was like finding a key for a door that had been locked her whole life. So what made Hannah Booth call time on her weekly sessions? Here she explores the important lessons she has learned from going to therapy for 10 years, including potentially the most important one of all, when to stop. Read by Esther Coles. I am standing outside an ordinary house in a tree-lined street on a midsummer afternoon, about to change my life. I glance through a window and see the reassuring domestic ephemera of books, a computer monitor, a child's drawing. Next to the front door is a small type sign with the details of a psychotherapist. I draw myself up, feeling both grown up and childishly nervous, and ring the buzzer. It's June 2012, and I'm nearing 38. The country is preoccupied with whether the Olympics will be ready on time, and if England might crash out of the Euros. I have other things on my mind. A few weeks earlier, I made a call. The woman on the end of the line was polite, warm and to the point, and we agreed to meet. Waiting for her to answer the door, I start to sweat. Will I like her? Will she think I am a time waster? What am I going to say? I feel like an outlier. In 2012, therapy carries something of a stigma. Beyond one or two close friends, I haven't told anyone I'm here. The open conversations we have today around mental health weren't happening. Now, Covid has sharpened everyone's awareness of their own mental health struggles. According to a report by Mind last November, over a third of Britons say they don't have the support or tools to deal with the ups and downs of life. Ten million people will need support for their mental health as a direct result of the pandemic, according to the Centre for Mental Health. Demand for therapy is outstripping supply. A study by the New York Times in December revealed that therapists in the US, where it has always been more accepted, are turning away patients. Even in the UK, demand for mental health advice has soared since the start of the pandemic. It hasn't taken a crisis for me to seek help. I'm doing so because I feel stuck, 
at work, in life, and certainly in love. I feel there is a braver, happier, more fulfilled person inside me trying to get out, but I don't know how to reach her. I am existing with a low-level frustration, without being able to pinpoint what I'm frustrated with, let alone find the tools to address it. I have been wondering for a while if talking to a professional might help, but something has always stopped me. Who am I with a loving family, good friends, a roof over my head and food on the table to need therapy? I don't come from a family of therapy seekers. My Yorkshire-born parents from working-class homes would no sooner have sought out something so self-indulgent than joined a circus. In the world I've grown up in, therapy is seen as a rather shameful last resort for someone in need of help, not for someone with a functioning life who's feeling a bit directionless. Just cheer up and get on with it, was the message I learned. As a result, it's taken me a long time to convince myself that even though I'm not suffering from what my friend and also therapist Ellen calls capital T trauma, it could be helpful. As Stephen Gross writes in his 2013 book, The Examined Life, at one time or another, most of us have felt trapped by things we find ourselves thinking or doing, caught by our own impulses or foolish choices, ensnared in some unhappiness or fear, imprisoned by our own history. We feel unable to go forward, and yet we believe that there must be a way. I want to change. In fact, I want to be a different person altogether. I'm like an old house whose electrics keeps shorting in the same place, and I want someone to rewire me. I have a very strong sense that unless I do something, I'll be stuck here forever. So here I am, sweating on a doorstep, asking for help. I'm about to learn a huge amount. Tears are useful. As I sit down for my first session, I notice a box of tissues on a table within arm's reach. I get through a lot of them that afternoon. The release of talking of being listened to, is an emotional experience. We sit in a book-filled room. I am on a comfy sofa. My therapist is on a chair. Light pours in. Over the years, I can almost memorise the titles behind her. So long will I spend gazing at them when stuck for words. Likewise, the tree outside a window becomes as familiar as the view from my own flat. I will witness its full cycle, from summer fullness to bare winter branches, many times over. In these early weeks, I do a lot of talking, as my therapist gets to know me. When she speaks, it is often to affirm what I've said. It sounds like you've always, or it's okay to feel. At first I sit upright. As I start to feel more comfortable, I sometimes curl my legs under me. My therapist refers to the talking we do, week in, week out, as work. There's a reason for this. It's hard. Many sessions, particularly in these early days, are emotionally battering, tearful, and leave me feeling wrung out for days. But therapeutic tears feel different from normal life tears. They often appear out of the blue. They are real, but they are confined to the session leaving me feeling a little shell-shocked afterwards. Where did that come from, I think? 
When I sob about something, my therapist is sympathetic, but instead of comforting me, she is detached enough to be curious about my tears, what they reveal. They are like a truth-seeking missile, a direct line to what really matters. It is during one of these tearful moments that I acknowledge how much I want to be a mother, despite the fact that I am single, and so we start to talk about what I could do. She challenges me. Is it that I don't believe I could cope as a single parent? Or is it that I feel I must fit in with society's norms? Do I want to wait until I'm in a good relationship, which could take years? Or does this feel more urgent? Over a period of months, my ingrained prejudices start to shift and my perspective changes. I take a few baby steps, an appointment with a fertility clinic, a checkup with my GP, telling myself that at any point I can pull the plug. I never do. Nearly two years after our first session, in April 2014, I give birth to a daughter. It's the best decision I've ever made. Proper change takes time. I assume I might have a few months of sessions over the summer to iron out some issues, then call it a day, like taking myself to a garage for an MOT. But because I haven't sought out therapy after a big T trauma, a divorce, a bereavement, a breakdown, I realise that after nearly four decades of ingrained behaviour, there is no sudden U-turn. Rather, I'm like a large tanker slowly starting to alter its course. By autumn, I realise I may be here sometime. The early weeks zip by, I feel euphoric. My sessions filled with wave after wave of insights, revelatory eureka moments of, so that's why I've always done that. But then things quieten down. Sessions sometimes feel like a waste of time. I feel grumpy and frustrated. This, I've read, is when the hard, unsexy work happens. A therapist is part detective, part archaeologist, scratching at the surface, finding something of potential interest and digging a little deeper. These quieter, less emotional sessions are where the deep excavation takes place. We start to work as a team, trying to piece things together, make connections. Meanwhile, in the real world, life starts to get a little easier. One day, I ask for something at work that, almost overnight, makes my job more interesting and rewarding. This real-world application of my therapy makes all the hard work feel worthwhile. I learn never to second-guess a session, however. Out of the blue, I have one that leaves me feeling not just that a weight has been lifted, but that a large blockage inside me has been surgically removed. But then I realise that, of course, these breakthroughs come out of all the plodding apparently unsatisfying work of the previous months. The past holds clues. Before I start therapy, I am vaguely aware from TV shows from the little I know about Freud that most therapists root around in your past. I'm sceptical about this. How relevant can it be? I want to dive straight into my pressing present-day issues. Delving into my childhood feels distracting and time-consuming. Yet from our very first session, 
my therapist and I start to make connections between how I experienced the world as a child and how I experience it today. Surprise, surprise, they aren't too dissimilar. We survive, in the broadest sense, our childhoods by figuring out how to fit into our families, our roles, our small world. We learn about relationships from our parents. We then carry these ways of being into our adult lives where, in many cases, they are no longer useful or relevant. To me, this joining the dots seems like magic. To understand that there is a sound reason why I behave a certain way is revelatory, exhilarating and a huge relief. It's like finding a key for a door that has been locked your entire life. An example. I wonder regularly why I have often been unsure how I feel about things. It's frustrating. Feelings should be instinctual, clear-cut, yet I have always struggled to articulate and trust mine. We realise they weren't discussed, taken seriously or explored growing up. It's hard work challenging this deeply held belief. But don't blame your parents. I mean, absolutely do at first. Philip Larkin was right. They fuck you up. So every frustration at my behaviour, every flaw in my character, every life skill I feel I lack, I lay the blame at my parents' door. It feels good at first, as it lets me off the hook. I don't have to take responsibility for my failings. But after a while, it starts to feel a bit pointless, a bit immature. It's a therapeutic dead end. As time goes on, I realise something blindingly obvious. My parents had to make do with their parents. Perhaps I should have recalled Larkin's second verse, but they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats. I loved my grandparents, but they didn't arm their children with the skills and language to navigate the world of emotions. Once this truth is established, it leads to more interesting conversations. Understanding that I'm flawed, or, more accurately, that we all are, so get over it, and that I must dictate what shape my life takes, gives me the freedom to think about the choices I could make in future. I'm lucky to have the parents I do, but they are too emotionally involved to be objective about me. A neutral professional therapist is a great counterpart. I hope to arm my daughter with as many life skills as I can, but I'll no doubt screw her up in my own special way. Self-acceptance is actually a thing. This phrase is bandied about so freely in self-help articles and on fridge magnets, it has almost lost its meaning, but for me, it is core to it all. I have always felt unfinished, not yet perfect, and that if I could become a bit more confident, a bit less self-conscious, then I would be ready to launch into the world, fully formed and then I would find contentment, fulfilment and love. As I half suspect before I start therapy, it turns out I'm spectacularly misguided about this desire for a wholesale personality transplant. At the end of our first session, my therapist asked me if I'd ever considered that someone, a partner, a parent, a friend, a boss, might accept me exactly as I am, flaws, insecurities and all. I call this the Bridget Jones School of Therapy. I never have. 
it is a revelation. Ask yourself the right questions. The cliché goes that therapists nod their heads wisely and say, and how did that make you feel? They do say this sometimes, and in fact, when no one has ever asked you this question before, it's extremely powerful when they do repeatedly. This repetition, in my case, starts to have an effect. It makes me see that my feelings are valid, that they aren't right or wrong. They just are. But my therapist rarely asks that question, mostly because it is implicit in everything we talk about. Instead, she regularly asks a more powerful one. What's that good for? At first, I don't understand what she means. What is choosing an unavailable man good for? Well, nothing, obviously. But what she actually means is, what purpose does it serve? He'll never commit to a relationship with me, I venture. And what's that good for, she asks, half smiling. It keeps me from having an intimate, grown-up relationship, I say, which keeps me from risking being hurt by someone I actually care about, and so on. Today, I ask myself this question all the time. What is keeping quiet about a work frustration good for? It stops me having to push myself and potentially make higher-profile mistakes. What is my insistence that my daughter clear her plate good for? It makes me feel I can control her, and therefore feel in control as a parent. There's always an explanation. Don't be afraid of silence. If a therapy session is a mirror of the outside world and how we exist in it, then I clearly don't know when to shut up. A therapeutic silence is worse than a real-life silence. It is unnaturally awkward sitting opposite someone while they stare at you, waiting for you to speak. So I fill all of them. Of course, this is a trick I know from my own world. Silences are often when the juiciest things come out, as any journalist who regularly does interviews will tell you but it takes courage to sit with it. If you are constantly filling silences to avoid their awkwardness, you are, I've learned, avoiding something else, an intimacy, a genuine thought, an ability to feel a little exposed. The hardest silences in therapy are those at the start of each session. It's an unspoken rule that you, rather than your therapist, start off. Often, what you first say is revealing, and can dictate that entire week's conversation. For me, this pressure feels unbearable, so I mitigate it by trying to turn up prepared, with a good yarn, or running through our last session in my head, planning what to say when I arrive. My therapist challenges me on it. What might happen if I don't prepare, and instead just see what happens? What's my biggest fear? That I will say something trite or embarrassing, I say that I'll be found out for being stupid or for not having done my homework. Do you often feel like this, she asks, needing to be the good girl for fear of what people might think of you? You bet I do. Check in with yourself every now and then. Sometimes, of course, I'm just stumped for words. I stare out of the window, I fidget, I smile apologetically. I talk about the weather or I compliment my therapist on something she's wearing. It is agonising. She nods politely, quietly scrutinising me. 
After a while, she puts me out of my misery and says, what's happening for you right now? It's a question we don't often ask ourselves, checking in with the present moment, and it's surprisingly helpful. The first few times she says it, I talk about something that happened in the week or a future plan. When I do, she stops me gently and says, no, right now, what's happening for you right now? The truth is, I often don't know because I don't think about it. But when I do speak honestly, what I say usually surprises me. I am really, really pissed off, I say. I am shocked. Once it has been voiced, we work backwards to figure out what I'm so pissed off about. You have to know when to stop. It's been ten years since that warm June afternoon. After a decade of talking with my therapist, my life has changed immeasurably for the better. I'm a mother, I'm more confident and fulfilled at work than I've ever been, and I'm more than 18 months into a stable, loving relationship with an exceptionally good man. A lack of self-worth, a fear of taking up too much space, a fear of expressing how I feel, that have all accompanied me since girlhood, have lifted. Some of this is the simple fact of ageing but mostly it is thanks to the power of my weekly conversations. But I am stopping. Therapy is a powerful means to an end, and it has armed me with the skills, in effect, to be my own therapist. As we wind down, I am curious to see how I feel and what I will miss about it. My relationship with my therapist is a strange one-sided one, I know almost nothing about her, yet she knows everything about me, from my darkest fears to my most shameful thoughts. I am forever amazed at how much she remembers, stories I've told her, the names of obscure family members. We are close in some ways, but it's not a friendship. I wonder aloud if she will miss me. She volunteers that she will. We are human beings too, she says. Therapy hasn't fixed me because I wasn't broken. It has helped me access and make sense of my thoughts, feelings and actions. Now the end is approaching. Have I run out of problems? Will I never again suffer moments of self-doubt or get tongue-tied in intimate conversations? Of course not. But my therapy has helped me confront and understand them and given me the tools to tackle them. That was My 10 Years of Therapy and Why I've Decided to Stop by Hannah Booth, read by Esther Coles. Finally, do you cry at game shows? Do you get queasy at other people's illnesses? Do you worry about missing animals? Feeling others' pain is hard, says best-selling author Joanna Cannon, but it can be harnessed for good. Read by George Georgiou. As a very small child, I returned from a weekend in Cromer with not only a collection of seashells and a new bucket and spade, but an exceptionally broad Norfolk accent. At first, everyone found this highly amusing, but it was less funny when I was still talking that way several weeks later. My mother tells me a similar thing happened when they took me to Wales and North Yorkshire. 
because like a sponge, I soaked up whichever accent I was exposed to. It wasn't just accents either. As a five-year-old during a particularly boisterous garden game with a friend, I ran into the kitchen sobbing hysterically and clutching my hand. Whatever have you done to yourself? My mother said. It's not me. I frantically rubbed my wrist. It's Susan. She's fallen over. Because Susan's pain was my pain, and I felt it just as keenly as if I'd done the damage to myself. Back then, we didn't have a name for this subconscious appropriation of other people's emotions and accents, but now it's fashionably referred to as being an empath, or in some cases, a hyper-empath. Relating to someone else's pain is a natural human response. We're all empaths to a degree, but hyper-empaths are different. Do you sob when people win a large amount of money on a quiz show? Do you start to feel queasy if someone says they feel sick? Hyper-empaths take everything on, noise, colour, conversation, so often find crowds overwhelming. Of course, there are many reasons why we might be flooded with emotion, but hyper-empaths are so tuned in to other people's feelings that the sensation of taking on someone else's experience is unmistakable. We do it quietly, though not to draw in sympathy or make everything about ourselves. Often we disguise it so cleverly that our struggles may go unnoticed. Labelling yourself isn't always helpful. Once you've stuck one on, it can be difficult to remove. But understanding the idea of hyper-empathy might explain why life sometimes leaves you emotionally exhausted. At first glance, a tendency to relate to others so keenly is wholly positive. You're so compassionate, people say whenever I complain. The problem is that, along with your own issues, you end up dragging everyone else's pain and anguish around as well, which can be quite draining. I've also been accused of thinking I'm special because I claim to feel everything very deeply. But hyper-empathy is so much more than caring and feeling, and the navigation of extreme emotional reactions is tiring. Compassion and empathy are positive qualities but there is a tipping point. Kerry Danes, consultant psychologist and best-selling author, says empathy, like many sweet things, is fantastic in moderation, but debilitating in excess. As a forensic psychologist, often working on cases involving horrendous acts, I often find myself flooded with empathy. If I allowed it to, it would lead, at best, to some bad practice and decisions on my part, and at worst, complete incapacitation. It's a tricky balance, one I battled with constantly when I was a junior doctor. I eventually specialised in psychiatry for six years, where the balance was easier, and though now I'm a full-time writer, the memory of those days is still vivid. I remember watching my consultant deliver devastating news to a patient, and the many crash calls I rushed to, proving futile. I could no longer run sobbing to my mum, so, on a regular basis, I'd lock myself in a toilet cubicle at the Staffordshire Teaching Hospital, and very quietly cry. I found working with elderly patients especially distressing, because they were often alone, and I found nothing more upsetting than an empty plastic chair at a bedside during visiting hours. Hyper-empaths relate heavily to other people, and perhaps the isolation I so often saw in older patients was something I could also see in myself. Medicine was an unexpectedly lonely job, I envied people who could leave it all behind at the hospital gates at the end of a shift because I took everything home with me. 
There were no doctors in my family, and although my mum and partner were supportive, it's difficult to explain to someone else how it feels to walk the wards. My concentration was shot to pieces, and the things that usually brought me comfort, watching a film or reading, became impossible. Instead, I would sit and ruminate, turning over the day's events in my mind, even ringing the wards on my day off to see how a patient was doing. My hyper-empathy was at it outside work too. In a supermarket queue, I once overheard a complete stranger discussing a lost dog. I was so upset for this woman. I spent five hours at home trawling internet rescue centres trying to locate it. The dog came home, by the way, which I'm telling you because I know there will be fellow hyper-empaths reading who will be worried about it. It seems counterintuitive that people with hyper-empathy would work in a job where they're exposed to extraordinary amounts of suffering, but the caring professions are knee-deep in empaths. Perhaps the ability to understand someone else's pain means we're especially driven to help them, to fix things. But it didn't take me long to realise there are many things we are unable to fix. It's a difficult lesson for an empath. The desire to help someone is overwhelming and, on a slightly less altruistic level, if you can make someone else feel better, you will, by default, start to feel much better yourself. This was never more apparent than with one palliative care patient I met. Even thinking of her now makes me catch my breath. We were exactly the same age, and we'd grown up in the same part of the world. We knew the same lyrics to the same songs, and we'd spent our teenage years with the same posters on our bedroom walls. If ever there was a patient to bring out my excess of empathy, it was her. The difference between us was that she had metastatic breast cancer, and I did not. I was involved in her care for a long time, and I had the great privilege of sitting with her as she died. It was a moment I'll never forget, and it made me realise I had to do something about my hyper-empathy, or I would go under. Dane says it's more useful to think of it as rational compassion, a concept which originated with author and psychologist Paul Bloom. She says it's important to separate feeling for the logical quality of caring for others and being concerned about their well-being, from feeling with, which epitomises empathy and can be the component that trips us up. If we can let go of the feeling with, but retain the feeling for, we've pretty much cracked it. The trick is identifying an incoming emotion, making a decision as to whether it's useful and adjusting our reaction accordingly. If you're angry about animal cruelty... Volunteer as a dog walker at your local animal shelter. There's always a need. If the report of a serious road accident upsets you, write to your local council about speed cameras. Bloody hard, though, Danes admits. It really is. I had no coping strategies as a doctor, and this was why I started to write. I sat in my car in my lunch break and began to write a story about two little girls in the summer of 1976 that eventually became The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. At the time, it was just an escape, and I didn't ever imagine being published. But gradually, the same empathy that left me sobbing in a public toilet helped me become a better writer. I channeled my emotions into something positive, and feeling them so strongly, I found I could walk in the shoes of my characters. With a little concentration, I could almost think myself into being someone else. The story I wrote as therapy won a competition which led to a publishing contract, 
and being an empath became very useful when I started to earn a living making up stories. I still volunteered on the wards though. I could never let go of a job I loved so much. Being a hyper-empath isn't all pain and misery. We can make great listeners and great friends because we understand others. We're probably the first person you'll ring when you're having a bad day. We also have superb intuition, that gut feeling we get about something. Most of the time, it's right. People often describe me as oversensitive, but I've always thought that was a strange phrase, like saying a tree is overgreen. I still have a thing with accents, though. A few weeks ago, our Australian neighbour knocked on the door, asking for a favour. As she thanked me and walked back down the drive, I shouted, No worries, mate! at the top of my voice, like I was auditioning for a part in Neighbours. I wasn't taking the mickey, honestly. I'm just quite absorbent. That was Are You a Hyper Empath? by Joanna Cannon. Read by George Georgiou. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Esther Coles and George Georgiou and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.